0: Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Uh, We're getting close to Advent, only three more Sundays left in ordinary time, and then we start the calendar over again. And for the three remaining Sundays in ordinary time, I want to preach a three-part series from the very interesting Old Testament book of Job. Yeah, a murmur in the crowd. (laughs) Job! a blameless victim. Job, uh, what to say about the book as a whole? Well, it's a Jewish creation, but it's not, a, it's not about Jews. I mean, the figure of Job and the other people that show up in the book are not Jewish. It's more universal in scope. Uh, I am of the opinion that the prose portion of Job, that is the first two chapters and the last chapter are uh, very ancient indeed, but that the poetic portion, that is chapters 3 through 40, are a creation of a genius of a poet from the period of the exile. But that's just all that academic stuff that nobody really cares that much about. So let's get started, because we, even though we have three weeks to get through this book, oh, we've, we've got our work cut out for us. So Job chapter 1, Verse 1, there once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. All right, so once upon a time there was a man, and we know six things about this man. We know his name. What's his name? Job. Where did he live? In the land of Uz. Or you can say the land of Oz, if that turns you on. Um, And he was blameless. Was he blameless? Could you blame Job? Should we blame Job? Why not? Because he's, he's blameless, and he's full of integrity, and he fears God, and he turns away from evil. We're told that in the first verse. I mean, that's the first thing we're told and here's what the book of Job does. It exposes the satanic, because Satan's going to play a big role in this story. The book of Job exposes the satanic practice of blaming the victim. The book itself presents a test to the reader. Can the reader hold on to what God says about Job? What does God say? God says Job is blameless. Can the reader hold? Hold on to that. Most readers cannot. Most preachers cannot. Eventually, they are seduced into agreeing with Job's accusers and think that Job has done something wrong. Most readers end up forgetting what God has said about Job and agreeing with what Satan says about Job. This shows us just how insidious The satanic temptation is to blame a scapegoat. It's a temptation that really only Jesus can save us from. All right, so there was this man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity, feared God, and stayed away from evil. Verse 6, One day the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, or in Hebrew it's hasatan, Definite article. Satan. It's not, it's not a proper name. Um, satan is not the Christian name of Jesus, of, 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 of the devil. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's, it's, not a, it's not a name. It's simply means the accuser, but we've grown accustomed to saying, well, that's the devil's Christian name. <laughs> no. Uh, and the accuser, the Satan, came before them. So this, this there's this court in heaven, and here comes Satan. Where have you come from, the Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord. I've been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. Okay. Then Yahweh, the Lord, asked the Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. Who's the finest man in all the earth? Job is, yes. He is, what is he? He's, can you blame him? No. Why not? Because he's... This is the second time. I won't show you the third time. The third time is in the next chapter. But three times, once by the narrator, twice by God, we're told that Job, he is blameless, a man of complete integrity. Does he fear God? He fears God. And does he stay away from evil? He stays away from evil. And so this is what, this is the challenge. Can we remember this? We've been told this by God. Can we remember that Job... Is blameless. Well, what happens next is there's this interesting thing where it's like a wager between God and Satan. Satan says, well, you know, does, does, uh, does Job fear you, love you, worship you, follow you, obey you for nothing? For nothing? You know, that's, that's pure worship. We worship God because God is God, and we're not seeking to get anything out of it. We do worship God. The purest form of worship is worship for nothing. It's a complete waste. It's a holy waste. That woman poured out that alabaster jar of pure nard upon Jesus, and the critics said, why, this waste. Jesus said, leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing. But the Satan, he's the accuser. He says, we got a quid pro quo going on. You know that phrase nowadays. We got a quid pro quo going on. That's Latin for this for that. He, where he does this. He fears you and obeys you so that he can get that, all this protection and blessing and prosperity. He's got a total quid pro quo going on. And God says he does not, and Satan says he does too. And so they come up with this wager. And we're going to find out whether Job worships God for nothing or whether it's a quid pro quo of this for that. And uh, Job is hit by three waves of catastrophe. First, he loses all of his wealth; he's completely wiped out. He was a rich man now; he's bankrupt. He's lost everything. That's devastating. Think of yourself. You know, you, you, you've accumulated, you've achieved, you have financial security, and then you lose it all. You're impoverished. Everything's gone. That's that's heavy right there. But right on the heels of that. All ten of his children are killed when a tornado hits the house they were having a birthday party in. There were seven son- he had seven sons and three daughters, and all ten children killed. I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't fathom it. And then it's followed up with a, a devastating strike upon Job's health. And so he's lost everything his wealth, his health, his children. He's lost everything. Chapter 1, verse 22, we kind of end up that story with this. In all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. The theme of the book of Job is blame. Job is blameless. He's not to blame. And when horrible things happen to an innocent man, a blameless man, when bad things happen to a good man, this good man did not blame God. He's going to complain But he doesn't blame God. He doesn't traffic in the business of blame. He doesn't think that's what he should do. Um, Chapter 2, verse 11. When Job's three friends heard of the tragedy, I mean, this is a tragedy. I mean, just try to live into that a little bit. To lose all of your wealth, to lose your health and lose your children. Ten of them. All of them. I mean, the, the depth of... Bereavement, grief, soul-crushing. When Job's three friends heard of the tragedy he had suffered, they got together and traveled from their homes to comfort and console him. Their names were Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite. When they saw Job from a distance, they scarcely recognized him. Wailing loudly, they tore their robes and threw dust into the air over their heads to show their grief. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and nights. No one said a word to Job, for they saw that his suffering was too great for words. Yeah. These are real friends. These are real friends. Are we really to understand that all of this happened to Job because of a bet between God and Satan? I don't know that that's actually what's going on, but, but we're just immediately thrown into the problem of how do you explain the reality of evil? How do you deal with the fact that bad things happen to good people? That's what much of Job is about. And so here's this man, he's a blameless man, fears God, turns away from evil, complete integrity, and the worst that can happen has happened to him. And he's got three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and they travel and they come to him. And when they see him, they can hardly recognize him. The man's been so destroyed by tragedy. And they just sit with him. For seven days and seven nights, they just sit with him. And they just weep. And they don't say a word... This is, this is them at their best. Oh, that they would have just stayed for seven days, wept, hugged, and not opened their mouth. Well, after seven days and seven nights of just sitting in silent agony and mourning and lamentation, chapter 3, verse 1, at last Job spoke. So Job speaks first. And he cursed the day of his birth. This is a bitter lamentation. He doesn't curse God. His wife had said, curse God and God, die. Curse God and kill yourself. He said, no, I'm not going to do that. That's foolish. I'm not going to do that. But out of his brokenness, out of his pain, out of his grief, out of his sorrow, out of his profound bereavement, he curses the day of his birth. He doesn't curse God. He curses. He's saying, I wish I'd never been born. I think most people have had moments like that. Sometimes little children, you know, over a petty thing, they didn't get a candy bar and they'll say, I wish I'd never been born. I didn't ask to be born. Well, what'd you say? Well, if you'd asked, we just said no anyway, so it doesn't matter. But this isn't that. This, this is, I mean, he just, he's reached the point where he says, well, life is not worth living. I'm going to go on living, but it's not worth it. I wish I'd never been born. I wish I wasn't hurled into this phenomenon of existence because it's brought me such depth of pain. We cannot, can we understand that? Like, that he laments his existence. And he pours out this bitter lamentation that ends like this. Chapter 3, verse 25. What I always feared has happened to me. What I dreaded has come true. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest. Only trouble comes. (sighs) I can't tell you how many preachers I have heard When they get to chapter 3, verse 25, go, aha! That's what Job did wrong. See, he wasn't really a man of faith. He had fear. He was filled with fear. He was filled with fear. And that's what gave the power to the devil. And they began to blame. They can't even go three chapters. God has told them, Job is blameless. He's blameless. He's blameless. They can't go three chapters. They get there and they go, oh, it must have been because he didn't have faith. He had fear. And that's why it happened. I was preaching in a conference in another country. I'm not going to give any more information than that. And the speaker in, before me spoke for an hour and a half, giving 18 reasons why this happened to Job. 18 mistakes that Job made. Dear Lord in heaven. I did have to. I did it gently, but I had to get up and say Job was blameless. Not only is there not 18 reasons, there's not one. He's blameless. Okay, what happens next is the bulk of the book. We have these rounds of debates. We have a series of Job's friends. First Eliphaz, then Bildad, then Zophar. They go three rounds. So Eliphaz explains to Job why this happened. And Job says, no. And he defends himself. And then that, And then Job defends himself. And then Zophar. And then Job defends himself. And then they, they do that three times. So there's 18 speeches all in the form of poetry. Accusation, defense, accusation, defense, accusation, defense, ac- 18 times. Chapter 4, verse 1, Then Eliphaz, the Temanite, replied to Job, Verse 7, Stop and think. Do the innocent die? When have the upright been destroyed? Okay, who has died in this story? The children, the ten children. And he says, Well, let's think about this, Job. Job. I know you're very upset and you're cursing the day of your birth and all that, but think about this. When when, when do do the innocent die? When have the upright been destroyed? Now, there's an implication there, isn't there? The implication is what? He's not saying it. He's just implying that, well, you know, maybe your kids weren't as good as you thought they were. Maybe they were guilty of something you didn't know about. And God has acted to enforce justice. That's, that's the implication. The book of Job is a counter narrative to the book of Proverbs. For example, this is, this is very much like Proverbs. Proverbs says this: Proverbs 12:21: No harm befalls the righteous, but the wicked are full of misery. Okay? No harm befalls the righteous, but the wicked are full of misery. Now, if you take that as a general principle, fine. Fine. I mean, here's the message of Job. Fear God and do what is right, and you'll be blessed in life. To which I say, Amen. That's the message of Proverbs. Did I say, did I say Job? Sorry. Perry's on the front row, fact checking me. All right, that's right. The message of Proverbs is fear God, do what is right, and you'll have a good life. And you know what? I agree with that. Fear God, do what's right, it'll be good for you. Fear God, do what's right, you'll have a good life. Fear God, do what's right. That's a true principle. It's not an ironclad promise. See, what you can do is go... Proverbs chapter 12, verse 21 says, No harm befalls the righteous, but the wicked are full of misery. I claim that I'm righteous and no harm shall ever befall me. The problem with going down that is, what if something does befall you that is evil? Then you're left with no recourse but to say, me or that person there must not be righteous. If you say to Job, no evil shall befall the righteous. He says, yeah, okay, but I got a story to tell. And we're gonna to have to hear his story. Chapter 5, verse 17, this is Eliphaz continuing. But consider the joy of those corrected by God. Do not despise the discipline of the Almighty when you sin. Now, if you just pluck Job 517, just pluck it out and put it on your refrigerator. You know, a refrigerator verse, got a little magnet. But consider the joy of those corrected by God. Do not despise the discipline of the Almighty when you sin. You know what you say to that? Amen. It's true enough, right? That's true. There's a, on a refrigerator. But consider the joy of those corrected by God. Do not despise the discipline of the Almighty when you sin. Amen. Except in context, it's an accusation. In context, Eliphaz is accusing Job of sinning. Chapter 6, verse 14. Job is responding to Eliphaz. One should be kind to a fainting friend, but you accuse me without any fear of the Almighty. One should be kind to a fainting friend, Philo of Alexandria, be, be kind, because every person you meet is fighting a great battle. Be kind. One should be kind to a fainting friend, but you accuse me, you Satan me, without any fear of the Almighty. So, in, the, in Job, you have, in the first two chapters, you have the Satan. He's patrolling the earth, he's doing his stuff, he's... Uh, Going into the court of heaven, he's arguing with God, and then he's let loose upon uh, Job, and he's the instrument behind these three catastrophes, and then poof, he disappears. And, And Hasatan, the Satan, is not mentioned for the rest of the book after the first two chapters. But he doesn't go away. Where does the Satan go in the story? enters into Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar. They become possessed. And they don't know it. I believe that Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad believe what they're saying. But what they don't know is that they are possessed by an unholy spirit. How do you know the Holy Spirit from the unholy spirit? The Holy Spirit is the spirit of advocacy. The Holy Spirit is the paraclete. The Holy Spirit is the comforter. The Holy Spirit is the one that comes alongside and encourages us when we're fainting. It's the unholy spirit that's the spirit of accusation. And so the Satan doesn't go out of the story. The Satan just enters into Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and they take up the work of the devil, blaming an innocent victim. Verse 21, Job says, You too have given no help. You have seen my calamity, and you are afraid. Okay, I think we're getting somewhere. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar really are the friends of Job. They're friends. They really are. I mean, they came and sat with him in mourning in silence for seven days and nights. That's not something an enemy does they're friends oh by the way just so you'll know spoiler alert we won't get to it this week but God shows up at the end of all of this and rebukes Eliphaz Bildad and Zophar and specifically says you have not spoken of me correctly as Job has and I should punish you I won't if Job will pray for you That's how it, so just know that these guys are wrong Why are they wrong? Because they're afraid. What's happened is, they. how many of you have seen somebody you know close to you have some horrible tragedy befall them? And part of what you feel, you feel a lot of things. You feel love, you feel compassion, but you also feel, oh my God, I hope something like that never happens to me. How many of you can be honest that 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 goes through your mind? You think, oh, I don't know if I could bear up under that. I hope to God nothing like that ever happens to me. Well, that's their fear. And they can't handle that. They, they can't handle the idea that what happened to Job could happen to them. And so they have to construct in their mind a system that makes it impossible for that to happen to them. Which means they have to find a reason. They can't just be the vagaries of the universe. They have to come up with, with a system so that that could never happen to them, and, and The system basically ends up like this. Good things happen to good people. And so I'm going to be a good person. They have a very transactional relationship with God. They don't fear God for nothing. They fear God for something. Quid pro quo. I'm going to be good. I'm going to be righteous. I'm going to have faith or whatever it is. So the good things happen to me. And then when you see someone that doesn't fit that system you, that you have previously believed they were good but something bad has happened you have to find a way to blame them. Or else you're thrown into a position where you're saying what happened to Job could happen to me. But they're too afraid to be able to do that. Verse 29, 629 Job says stop assuming my guilt for I have done no wrong. Listen to Job He's correct. Stop assuming guilt. That's what they, they just assume there has to be guilt. They just believe that somehow that's the way the universe has to work. That God brings bad things on bad people. And so a bad thing has happened to this man. He must be guilty. Job says, stop assuming my guilt. I've done no wrong. And that's true. Chapter 7, verse 31. Job is now complaining not so much to Eliphaz, but he's complaining to God. That's who he's addressing it to. I cannot keep from speaking. I must express my anguish. My bitter soul must complain. Well, amen. You know what that is? That's the Psalms. That's about half of the Psalms. Christians get very nervous with that. Just bringing a, come on, God. What are you on, like, vacation or something? Where are you? You're on a vacation? Well, at least send me a postcard, you know, from the Bahamas. Let me know where you are. Because here I am. I'm just suffering for no reason. It's, it's like that. It's a bitter complaint. And that makes Christians nervous. It makes Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar very nervous. And they feel like, oh, we got to And they, they take up the cause of defending God, and that's going to get them in a lot of trouble. <laughs> Let me tell you something. God can handle your complaint. A lot of your friends can't, so you might not want to just dump it on them. But God can. God can handle. And you've you've got to do that because it's in you. This bitter poison is in you. Vomit it up on God. He can handle it. Chapter 8, verse 1. Then Bildad the Shuhite replied to Job, How long will you go on like this? You sound like a blustering wind. Does God twist justice? Does the Almighty twist what is right? Your children must have sinned against Him so their punishment was well deserved. Whoa, things are escalating now. What Eliphaz had only hinted at, suggested at, now Bildad, this isn't his first time to have a go at Job, He just comes out and says it. And see, he he has this idea of a universe of reciprocity. And the idea is, uh, God is good, and God does good things to good people. And the only time that is broken is if people are bad, and then God punishes them. And they get what they deserve. He has an idea, he has a theology, uh, Bill Dadd has a theology of reciprocity where his idea of justice is good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. If a bad thing happens to somebody, they must have deserved it. And that's what he says. And he's becoming very cruel. Chapter 9, verse 21, Job says, I am innocent, but it makes no difference to me. I despise my life. But he's not going to give up on life. Your future self has reasons to live of which your present self may not be aware of. Chapter ten verse one This is Job again. I am disgusted with my life. Let me complain freely. My bitter soul must complain. Yes, amen. Before God. Chapter eleven, verse one. Then Zophar so the Namathite replied to Job. Should someone answer this torrent of, shouldn't someone answer this torrent of words? Is a person proved innocent just by a lot of talking? Notice how he presumes. His system forces him to presume Job's guilt. So he's presumed guilty. Should I remain silent while you babble on? When you mock God, shouldn't someone make you ashamed? First of all, Job is not mocking God. He's complaining before God, but he's not mocking God. He fears God and does what is right. He's blameless. So what does he do? What What does Bildad do? He... He now blames Job, and now he's picking up the forbidden, outlawed weapon of shame. Somebody should make you ashamed. Blame and shame are weapons forbidden to Christians. They're weapons used by the Satan. And so, the forbidden weapons of blame and shame have been turned on this suffering soul. Chapter 12, verse 1, Then Job spoke again, You people, (laughs) this is... I like it that Job isn't going to go down without a fight. I, I, I admire this man. Then Job spoke, you people really know everything, don't you? I'll tell you, the last thing pe- suffering people need is know-it-alls. And when you die, wisdom will die with you. That's bitter sarcasm, my friends. Well, I know a few things myself. And you're no better than I am. Who doesn't know these things that you've been saying? I mean, some of the things they're saying are true, but they're misapplied. He's like, yeah, I know this stuff. Yet my friends laugh at me, for I call on God and expect an answer. I am a just and blameless man, yet they laugh at me. Remember, he is a just and blameless man. Chapter 13, verse 7. Job says, Are you defending God with lies? Do you make your dishonest arguments for his sake? See, they're afraid to tell the truth. The truth is, the truth is that apparently, Bad things, really bad things can happen to really good people. But they, they're afraid. See, for example, for example, for example. I believe that God is all good. I believe that God is all powerful. I believe that God is all knowing. And babies get brain cancer. And what do I do? I have to say things like, I don't know if I understand fully how to explain it. I can make some attempts. That's called theodicy. But I'm not going to defend God. That's above my pay grade. And I'll make mistakes. And I'll end up doing what these guys do. And I'll speak inaccurately of God. And God will eventually will have to say to him, shut up. You guys don't know anything about me. I should punish you. I'm not going to if, as long as Job prays for you. Job says in verse 12, 13, 12, Your platitudes are as valuable as ashes. Your defense is as fragile as a clay pot. Platitudes. When you go to the hospital, when you go to the visitation, don't give people platitudes. God needed another angel. Just don't do that stuff. Um, The wisdom of God is found more in paradox than in platitude. Sometimes we just have to hold things in tension. We just have to, I believe God is all powerful, all knowing, all good, and bad things happen to good people. It's a paradox. I hold it in tension. But I'm not going to try to defend God by blaming victims. Chapter 15 verse 4. This is Eliphaz. Have you no fear of God, no reverence for him? Of course he does. We've been told that Job fears God, but what Job doesn't have is the fake piety of what Job doesn't have is the fake piety of being afraid to admit doubt. Job is racked by doubt. But he still fears God and believes God. But he still has doubt. Eliphaz can't handle that tension. And so he has to say that any he has to say that Job is, has no fear of God. Chapter 16, verse 1. Then Job spoke again. I've heard all this before. What miserable comforters you are. Won't you ever stop blowing hot air? What makes you keep on talking? This is where this is the famous passage where we get the term for those three friends, miserable comforters. I've heard it all before. Miserable comforters. Won't you ever stop blowing hot air? What makes you keep on talking? When you are in the presence of people undergoing profound suffering, remember this acronym, W-A-I-T. Why am I talking? Wait, W-A-I-T, why am I talking? Maybe just walk in there, hand them a a, a Kleenex, put your arm around them, cry with them, pat them on the back and leave. The moment you find yourself trying to ease their pain by explaining it, wait, why am I talking? Chapter 19, verse 1, then Job spoke again, how long will you torture me? How long will you try to crush me with your words? You have already insulted me ten times. You should be ashamed of treating me so badly. Even if I sin, this is my concern. That is my concern, not yours. Well, that's really good. Job hasn't sinned. He hasn't sinned. He's blameless. But he says, so what if I have? What's that to you? That's later what Jesus will call, don't judge. It's not your role. You don't need to do that. You're not the judge. Just don't judge. You don't have to form an opinion, but don't judge. You know, they have this this platitude. Love the sinner, but hate the sin. I'm suspicious about a strategy of hating other people's sin. Rather, I think it should be love the sinner and hate your own sin. If you're going to hate sin, then hate your own sin. I don't think it's your business to hate other people's sin. Chapter 19, verse 25 no, let's skip that. We'll come back to that. Chapter 22, verse 4. This is Eliphaz. Is it because you're so pious that he, the Almighty, accuses you? Oh. See, he's, Eliphaz is now convinced that it is God who is accusing Job. Who accuses Job? The Satan. So what has Eliphaz done? He has confused God for the devil. Once you confuse God and the devil, mix them up. Reverse roles. You're no longer doing good theology. We'll put it that way. Is it, is it because you're so pious, this is Eliphaz talking to Job, that he accuses you and brings judgment against you? No, it's because of your wickedness. There is no limit to your sins. See how, the, how it's escalating? God says that he's blameless, that he turns away from evil, that he hasn't sinned. Eliphaz says, not one of you there's no limit to your sins. For example... This is horrible. I don't even want to read this, but I will. For example, you must have lent money to your friend and demanded clothing as security. Yes, you stripped him to the bone. You must have refused water for the thirsty and food for the hungry. You probably think the land belongs to the powerful and only the privileged have a right to it. You must have sent widows away empty-handed and crushed the hopes of orphans. Man. notice, See how his, how his imagination's working? None of this is true. But in his mind, he's, he's, he has to turn job into a monster so that his system still works chapter 31 verse 16 we're about done i know this is long today i know this i knew this going into this the next two will not be this long but i it's okay i'm not gonna ask for <laughs> thirty-one sixteen. job says have i refused to help the poor Across the hopes of widows? Have I been stingy with my food and refused to share it with orphans? No! From my childhood I've cared for orphans like a father. And all my life I've cared for widows. Whenever I saw the homeless without clothes and the needy with nothing to wear, did they not praise me for providing wool clothing to keep them warm? It's, it's very sad that they make Job do this. Yes, I, I didn't. You know what we could call this? the crucifixion of Job oh, I'm getting ahead to where I'll be going in the next couple of weeks but this is the crucifixion of Job about done 32-38 if my land accuses me and all its furrows cry out together or if I've stolen its crops or murdered its owners then let, then let thistles grow on the land instead of wheat And weeds instead of barley. Job's words are ended. And they pretty much are. Job doesn't talk much more after this. God's going to show up. There's going to be another accuser, Elihu. who will meet him next week. But I want to back up to 1925. This is Job. In the midst of being so bitterly accused. But as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and He will stand upon the earth at last. And after my body has decayed, yet in my body I will see God. I will see Him for myself. Yes, I will see Him with my own eyes. I'm overwhelmed at the thought. This is Job's greatest moment of faith. Job is sick. Job is suffering, he's afflicted, he's angry, he's depressed, he's attacked, he's accused, he feels forsaken by God. But Job still believes. Job believes that his Redeemer is God and God lives. Job believes that he will be rescued by his divine Redeemer. And whether Job even understands it or not, he's speaking of resurrection. But as we'll see next week, Job doesn't have to wait for his death to see God to be rescued and be rescued by his Redeemer. He's going to see God. God has heard Job's cry and God is drawing near. Of course, we are in a position to know what Job could not know. We know the name of his Redeemer who lives and his name is Jesus. You're not alone in your suffering. Jesus suffers with you. This is the only theodicy I know anything about. That God hurls us into radical freedom so that we might be free. But that opens the door for anything and everything to happen. But God does not remain aloof. God in Christ enters into it with us. Who is the ultimate blameless victim who was accused and attacked and crucified? God does not exempt himself, but in Christ he enters fully into being attacked and vilified and suffering, crucified. And Peter says, and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus' solidarity in human suffering becomes a wellspring of divine healing. I want to say that again. Jesus' solidarity with suffering humanity becomes a wellspring of divine healing. Jesus is our Redeemer. Jesus is the Savior of the world. And in the end, Jesus is going to reconcile all things. This is the great revelation given to the Apostle Paul. Colossians chapter 1 verse 19. For in God, for God in all His fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through Him God reconciled everything to Himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. And so that great mystic Julian of Norwich says, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying, that in the end, Christ is going to set everything right. It's in the process of becoming. We're not there yet, but we see it by faith from a distance, and we believe that Jesus is going to reconcile and set right all things. And Julian the mystic says what all the mystics say. They all say the same thing. And all shall be well. And all shall be well. And all manner of things shall be well. Amen. Stand up with me.